Let's start the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Tonight, I'm going to continue to talk about faith and refuge. In my last talk, I spoke about the first two kinds of faith, namely serene faith, that kind of faith that comes about without knowing much about the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, when people just have a very basic understanding that the Triple Gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha are worthy of refuge. This kind of faith uh, is called serene faith. uh, Another kind of faith is called firm faith and this comes about through some theoretical understanding of the Triple Gem to have some knowledge about the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha and have some general knowledge about the Buddha's teaching. And so in regard to this, then we had a look at the attributes of the Buddha. We have seen the Buddha is endowed with nine attributes and so to get a better understanding of who the Buddha was or how he behaved. We also had a look at the 32 major marks that the Buddha is endowed with, as well as uh, how he behaves when going or when eating. And so today we'll have a look at the other two kinds of faith and then go into the topic of refuge, going for refuge and then have a look at the attributes of the Dhamma. So another kind of faith is called unshakable faith. And this kind of faith or confidence, it develops in a person through practice, through personal direct uh, experience. And so, This not only means to theoretically know uh, some facts about the Triple Gem and the teachings of the Buddha, but this actually means to put the teaching into practice. We all know that the Noble Eightfold Path is divided into three groups, morality, concentration and wisdom. So whether we put the ethical guidelines into practice 
or whether we train ourselves in concentration or whether we engage in vipassana meditation in order to gain insights and understanding. So whatever we practice, we will definitely get some personal experiences in regard to the practice we are engaging in. And then based on that personal direct experience, our faith or trust into the teachings becomes stronger and it becomes unshakable. Then it cannot be shaken anymore because we personally have experienced it to a certain degree. And so the highest or the deepest impact comes through the practice of vipassana meditation when we attentively observe whatever arises in this body and mind. After some time, then we can come to see that these processes in the body and mind, they come and go. We see that none of these physical or mental phenomena stay forever. They don't last forever. They arise, stay a little while, and then pass away. So this understanding of the impermanent nature of phenomena is the doorway to liberation. And because this understanding of the impermanent nature of phenomena also leads to the understanding of their unsatisfactory nature as well as the understanding that these phenomena are impersonal or that there is no lasting or solid core or entity to be found in these processes. Some years ago I was teaching a retreat in Germany and there was one German meditator who could not stop saying um, that the Buddha was really a genius because whatever he had said was so true. In other words, whatever this yogi, this meditator experienced in her practice was in accordance with what the Buddha had said more than 2,500 years ago. And so, because her experience was in accordance with what the Buddha said, uh, it really deepened her confidence. It increased her faith in the Buddha's teaching. So this direct and personal experience and understanding leaves no more doubts about the benefits of this practice and therefore confidence or faith uh, grows and becomes stronger and this uh, increasing or deepening faith then inspires us to practice more and this in turn leads to a further deepening of this faith or confidence.
So this faith that develops through actual practice and personal experience, this is called unshakable faith. And for those who have attained any stage of past knowledge or fruition knowledge, then this unshakable faith is really strong and steadfast. And it is also said that it will never be broken again. With stream entry, attaining the first stage of enlightenment, this unshakable faith becomes invincible and also irreversible. Then the fourth kind of faith is called oncoming faith. And this kind of faith is not concerned with ordinary beings. This kind of faith is only concerned with bodhisattvas. This is the faith, faith that arises when uh, in, that's the kind of faith that arises in a bodhisattva after he receives the prophecy of a Buddha that in the far future he eventually will become a Buddha. And so this oncoming faith that arises in a bodhisattva is so strong that this bodhisattva, as we have heard, uh, strives for four incalculables and a hundred thousand worlds to perfect the paramis in order to become a Buddha. So, now we have uh, gone through these four kinds of faith. Serene faith, firm faith, unshakable faith, and oncoming faith. And now let's go to the topic of refuge and going for refuge. Generally speaking, going for refuge is an act that imparts direction and the forward momentum to the entire practice of the Buddhist path. As it plays such a crucial role, it is important to understand its significance and also its implications. So in regard to refuge and going for refuge, there arise the questions, why then should we go for refuge? And what is considered to be a true refuge? What are the objects of refuge? And how do we implement the act of going for refuge? Or when is the act of going for refuge pure? And when is it considered to be corrupted or even broken? So first of all, the reasons for going for refuge. So what is the need uh, for us uh, for to have a refuge? Why do we need a refuge? 
First of all, regarding refuge. What is a refuge? A refuge is a person or a place or a thing giving protection from harm and danger. So that mean, means that we need something to protect us from harm and danger. And then this leads on to another question. What is the harm and danger from which we need to be protected? On the first glance, we might say that there is no harm and danger around in our lives from which we need protection. Our jobs are secure, our health is good, and we have a nice and secure place to live, and we have enough money to live a good and decent life. However, this kind of security is easily shaken, maybe through suddenly losing the job, or the sudden death of a dear person, or through an, a life-threatening illness, or by a natural disaster. And so, when this security is shaken, then with this comes the painful recognition that such an external security can never be adequate to give us real uh, happiness and peace. So we need to see through the deceptions that lull us into that comfortable life and lead to a dangerous complacency. We need to have the courage to address the question, what are the real dangers in our lives and why do we need a refuge? So the real dangers in our lives can be identified on three different levels. One level is the dangers pertaining to this life. Another level is the dangers pertaining to future lives. And the third level is the dangers pertaining to the general course of existence. So let's have a look at the first level, the dangers pertaining to this present life. The most obvious danger is the sheer fragility of our body and its material supports. From the moment we are born, we are subject to illness to accident, to injury. And we are also subject to the troubles and misery caused by disasters, such as cyclones or earthquakes, floods, droughts, bushfires, avalanches, and so on. And on top of that, we are also afflicted by exploitation exploitation, by repression, by racial conflicts, or by wars. 
So if we are lucky to be spared from these external adversities, there is one adversity we cannot avoid, and this is death. We are bound to die, and whatever external material security and wealth we have accumulated, this proves to be of no help to escape from death. We are mortal, and nothing can change this. Although we have to die one day, it is uncertain when this will take place. As to, as to the external uh, disasters just mentioned, uncertainty is a common feature in all of them. We will never exactly know when they will strike. The fact that our life is dominated by uncertainty leads to a subtle uneasiness, to a disquietude. This might not be so obvious or conscious, but it definitely influences our thoughts and actions in a profound way. Sometimes we may sense that what we rely upon is uncertain, that it is unstable, and that it is vulnerable to change. Sometimes this subtle uneasiness may rise to the surface and then manifest as anxiety, or even stronger, as fear. The course of the world, the course of events, follows a pattern of its own, which is quite independent of our likes and dislikes, independent of our expectations and preferences. Illness, loss and death, they strike when it's time to ripe and manifest. And so the result of these unplanned adversities is dissatisfaction, frustration, misery and pain. And so this causes a fundamental disharmony between the course of the world and what we like, what we desire. And so the logical outcome of this fundamental disharmony is suffering. So to get away from this suffering, one of the two must change, either the world or our desires. So it's quite obvious what needs to change or what we can change. It's impossible to have the world adjusting to our likes and preferences. The only alternative is to change ourselves, to overcome all attachment and aversion to the uncountable manifestations in this world. We need to see these events 
as they are. We need to be able to see them with a certain detachment or with some equanimity. It's only when there is a detached equanimity in regard to these events happening in the world then we are uh, freed from the compulsive reactions of either holding on or rejection. A detached and equanimous mind uh, gives safety and security. Safety and security in the midst of the ups and downs of life. This equanimity cannot give us, cannot save us from the adversities themselves, but it can save us from the dangers of a reactive mind, can save us from anxiety, worry, attachment, frustration, expectation, and so on. And so this is the only possible protection. So therefore, we need some guidance for developing an equanimous mind. And as this guidance to an equanimous mind can give us some real protection, can provide us some safety, so this can be considered to be a true refuge. So this is the, re- the first reason uh, for going for refuge. It's the need for protection from negative reactions to the dangers faced in this life. Then the dangers manifesting on the second level are the dangers pertaining to future lives. Our exposure to danger and harm does not end with this life. According to the Buddha's teaching, death is not the end, but just a stepping stone to a new birth. And any new birth or existence will be beset by further suffering, by further harm and danger. Rebirth can take place in any of the six realms of existence. And a rebirth in the lower realms is considered especially unfortunate because, first of all, suffering is prevailing in these realms. And second, it's very unfortunate because an escape from these lower realms is extremely difficult. So, rebirth in a lower realm is a great danger pertaining to future lives. And therefore, We need protection, not to get there. But there is nothing or nobody who can uh, give us protection from falling into the lower realms. Uh, 
do not uh, fall into the lower realms. The only possible way is by avoiding the causes that lead to an unfortunate rebirth. And the causes for any rebirth in any uh, plane of existence lies in our karma. That means our volitional actions of body, speech and mind. And as we have seen when I was talking about karma, karma is either wholesome or unwholesome. And we have seen that wholesome actions are motivated by non-greed, which is generosity, renunciation, motivated by non-hatred, which is loving-kindness, compassion, and non-delusion, which is insight, understanding, and wisdom. Unwholesome actions are those actions motivated by greed, hatred, and delusion. And so these two classes of karma, wholesome and unwholesome, they generate rebirth in either fortunate planes of existence or unfortunate planes of existence. So wholesome karma produces rebirth in the happy or fortunate planes of existence. And unwholesome karma uh, produces rebirth in the unfortunate or unhappy planes of existence. And so, to avoid unwholesome karma, we need some help. First of all, we need some indication of what is considered to be wholesome and unwholesome. It might be clear in some regards, but maybe not so clear uh, in, other, in other regards. And even if we can discern between what is wholesome and unwholesome, our course of action is not always in alignment with this understanding. Sometimes strong emotional reactions or strong mental states fueled by greed or anger um, let us react uh, differently. And so, to restrain such impulsive actions, unwholesome actions, we have to train the mind to gain mastery over it. And, as we know, this is not an easy task. It requires quite some discipline and perseverance to follow the instructions of those who understand the subtle workings of the mind. So we need somebody who can teach us how to conquer our obsessions which drive us to react with unhealthy self-destructing patterns. So these instructions and the person who gives these instructions 
help protect us from future harm and suffering. And as such, they can be considered a true refuge. So, the second reason uh, for going for refuge is the need to achieve mastery over our capacity for action so that we can avoid falling into the lower realms. Then the third level. These are the dangers pertaining to the general course of existences. So Besides the evident adversities and misfortunes, harms and danger in this present life, and besides the risk of falling into an unfortunate uh, rebirth, there is an even greater danger running through the uh, entire course of worldly existences. And this is simply the intrinsic unsatisfactoriness of samsara. Whatever is subject to arising and disappearing cannot be the source of permanent happiness or security. What we usually rely upon for comfort and happiness or enjoyment is in reality just another form of suffering. And what we usually rely upon as security is in itself just a form uh, of danger or is exposed to danger. Or what we usually turn to as protection actually itself needs to be protected. So, the only way to escape from these dangers is to turn away from all forms of existences, to turn away from even the most sublime form of existences. And this can only be achieved when the causes for existence uh, are uprooted. And these causes are, according to the Buddha, craving and ignorance. Ignorance means not seeing things as they truly are, and because of that, this distorts uh, how we see the world. So, It's insights, understanding of wisdom that need to replace our craving and uh, ignorance. And for insight, understanding and wisdom to arise, we need some guidance and instructions from somebody who has seen through this uh, net of illusions. So those who can give us this uh, guidance and practical instructions 
provide protection from the dangers in samsara. And so therefore, they can be considered to be a genuine or true refuge. And so the third reason why we need a refuge is the need for liberation from the inherent uh, dissatisfaction in samsara. So what is this true refuge that is able to give us protection from these three types of dangers? These three types of danger being like anxiety, frustration, sorrow, distress in this present life. Then the danger uh, of the risk of an unhappy existence in the future and the danger of continued transmigration in samsara. So in Buddhism, we have three refugees which can be resorted to as protection from harm and danger. And these three refugees are the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. The Buddha comes first because he is the person who had himself reached liberation from danger and who had reached a secure and safe place. Then the Dhamma comes next as the state of refuge itself or as the path leading to this goal and as the instructions guiding, up, guiding us along this path. And in the third place we have the Sangha, which means the community of those who have entered the path, who have realized the goal and so can now teach the path to others. The Sangha, or these persons, they began like ourselves, troubled, uh, afflicted by troubles and suffering. But by following the path as taught by the teachers, they reached a place of safety beyond fear and danger. So the objects of refuge are the Triple Gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. When we go for refuge to the Buddha, we do so because we see him as a supreme embodiment of purity, of wisdom and compassion. And with that we recognize that he can guide us to a place of real safety away from the misery of samsara. When we go for refuge to the Dhamma, we resort to the teachings of the Buddha as they have been handed down through the generations. And this includes all the teachings 
as they have been preserved in the Tipitaka or the three baskets. On a deeper level, it is the Dhamma of actual achievement that we go for refuge. And this means the realization of path, path knowledge, the realization of fruition knowledge, and Nibbana, which means the final release from samsara. When we go for refuge to the Sangha, then we seek protection and guidance from the Aryan Sangha. As we have seen, Arya uh, refers to a person who has attained any of the stages of enlightenment, like those who have reached the first stage of enlightenment, Sotapanna, then with that realization, such a person becomes an Arya, a noble person. And so, members of the Arya Sangha have a deep realization of the Dhamma, and therefore they possess the qualities needed to uh, guide others towards this goal. So, the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, known as the Triple Gem, are worthy to be a refuge. It's the supreme refuge for those who want to uproot all the defilements and attain the cessation of all kinds of suffering. Now, the act of going for refuge. And it is said that the act of going for refuge is a purely mental act. And it's defined in this way. It is an act of consciousness devoid of defilements. It's motivated by confidence in and reverence for the Triple Gem, taking the Triple Gem as the supreme resort or supreme refuge. So this mental act of going for refuge to the Triple Gem is called Saranagamana in Pali. Sarana means refuge or dependence and Gamana means the fact of going or the state of going. So it's important to distinguish between these two things. The refuge is one thing, Sarana in Pali, and going for refuge is another thing, Sarana Gamana. So the refuge is the triple gem, consisting of the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. And this mental act of going for refuge to the triple gem, that's uh, Saranagamana. 
And so those persons who have um, gone for refuge to the Triple Gem, those persons are called holders of refuge. Or, in other words, these persons are considered to be uh, Buddhists. So in other words, it's the pure and genuine intention to resort to the triple gem as a refuge that one makes a Buddhist. So this comes about through a personal decision that one wants to accept the triple gem as a refuge or guiding principle in one's life. So to become a Buddhist, one doesn't need to go to an office and fill in forms and then have them approved, but it's purely this inner personal decision to take the triple gem as one's refuge or as one's guiding principle in one's life. One day, the Venerable Mahanama approached the Buddha and asked him, What does it constitute to be a lay disciple, an upasaka? And the Buddha answered, One who has taken refuge in the Triple Gem. And then Venerable Mahanama wanted to know, And what does it constitute to be a virtuous lay disciple? And the Buddha said, one who observes five precepts. Now in regard to going for refuge, uh, there are two types. There's a distinction. So one is a mundane going for refuge and the other one is a supramundane going for refuge. Going for refuge on the mundane level can be broken, but going for refuge on the supramundane level can never be broken again. So the supramundane going for refuge is this mental act of going for refuge that what did I say? The, I want to say the, the mundane the mundane um, going for refuge is this mental act of going for refuge that occurs in worldlings like in those persons who have not yet attained uh, stream entry And so in contrast, the supramundane going for refuge uh, is the mental act of going for refuge that occurs in persons who have attained uh, at least the past knowledge of um, stream entry. And so in noble persons in areas, this going for refuge is unshakable 
and it can never be broken again. And it is said that the supramundane going for refuge that arises in uh, noble persons it cannot be broken again and it said also in future existences it will not be broken. Even in future existences that uh, person will have faith uh, in the triple gem and take the triple gem as his or her refuge. The going for refuge on the mundane level, which happens in worldlings, in ordinary beings, uh, this can be broken. And one way of breaking the refuge is by changing to a different religion or doctrine. So if one has taken refuge in the Triple Gem, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, but then later on changes to a different doctrine or religion, then this kind of mundane refuge is broken. And the second time uh, that this refuge can be broken is at the time of death of that uh, ordinary person. When a person dies, then in that person, in that corpse, consciousness is no longer present. And because the act of going for refuge is a mental act, a mental process, so this corpse can no longer perform this act of going for refuge. And so therefore it's broken. The going for refuge can also be corrupted <coughs> or uh, to be impure. There are certain factors that make the going for refuge impure and insincere or ineffective. Uh, for example, it can happen through ignorance or by having doubts, or by holding wrong views regarding the triple gem. So basically there can be four causes for having a corrupted uh, refuge. The first one is not understanding the attributes of the Triple Gem, so not understanding the attributes of the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. The second one is to have a wrong understanding of the attributes of the Triple Gem. Third cause is to have doubts about the attributes of the Triple Gem. And the fourth cause is to have disrespect for the triple gem. 
So if any of these four causes are present, then it's said that the going for refuge is impure and with that um, ineffective. There are certain similes for the refugees and among these similes I just want to mention one. And so this simile compares the Buddha to a lotus flower which is considered the paragon of beauty and purity because lotus flowers they uh, grow in muddy uh, dirty lakes but then they rise above the dirty uh, murky water and the flower stands in uh, full splendor not uh, soiled by the mud and likewise the Buddha has grown up in the world but he overcomes the world and abides being not soiled by it. Then the Dhamma, the teaching of the Buddha is like the sweet perfumed fragrance from the lotus flower giving delight to all that can smell it. And the Sangha is compared to the bees which collect the, the, the pollen and then fly off to their hives and transform it into honey. During my last talk we had a look at the nine attributes of the Buddha and knowing these attributes and understanding their meaning amounts to have a good enough knowledge of the Buddha. And so then the faith in the Buddha based on this knowledge of the attributes is a firm faith, faith through understanding. So when we go for refuge to the Triple Gem, it's essential that we understand the objects of refuge very well. So now we already know the attributes of the Buddha. And so now we'll have a closer look at the attributes of the Dhamma, which is an object of faith and also an object of refuge. The Dhamma has six attributes and they are Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo, which means the Dhamma of the Blessed One is well expounded. The second one is Sanditiko, which means to be realized for oneself. The third one is Akaliko, and this one means immediately effective. The fourth one is Ehipasiko, which means come and see, or it's inviting for inspection. The fifth one is Obanaiko, 
and this means leading onwards. And the sixth attribute of the Dhamma is Pachatam Veditabo Vinyuhi. And this means to be personally realized by the wise. So the first attribute is Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo. And this means that the Dhamma of the Blessed One is well expounded. All these courses and teachings of the Buddhas have been collected and put together into the Tipitaka, the three baskets. And these three baskets consist of the Vinaya, which means the monastic discipline for nuns and monks, Then the second basket is the suttas, all the discourses given by the Buddha. And the third basket is the Abhidhamma, which is the systematic classification of mind and matter. The Buddha was teaching the Dhamma for the welfare of living beings for altogether 45 years. Not only the Buddha was teaching for the welfare and happiness of living beings, but he also sent out his monks to go and teach for the welfare and happiness of living beings. Not long after his enlightenment, he sent out his first 60 Arahant disciples and he told them, Because I am freed from all snares, both celestial and human, you too, because, are freed from all snares, both celestial and human. Wonder forth, O because, for the welfare of the multitude, for the happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the good welfare and happiness of devas and humans. Let not two go the same way. Teach, or because, the Dhamma that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing. Reveal the perfectly complete purified holy life. There are beings with little dust in their eyes, who are falling away because they do not hear the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. I too, because, will go to Senanigama in Uruvela in order to teach the Dhamma. And so then the Buddha went to Uruvela forest where he uh, uh, was giving a discourse to 1,000 Chatila ascetics. And that discourse was actually the famous fire sermon, the third discourse that the Buddha gave. So it said that the Buddha's teaching is good in the, mid- good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. There are different interpretation of this and one interpretation means uh, good in the beginning refers 
uh, to listening to a Dhamma talk. Already listening to a Dhamma talk can soften and calm down the mind and it can arouse faith and energy. And during the time of the Buddha, by virtue of their paramis, even while listening to a Dhamma talk, they reached various levels of enlightenment. Then, good in the middle means putting into practice what one has heard. So on whatever level we are practicing the Dhamma, we can get as much benefits as much as we put effort into practicing it. Many people are reluctant to actually put it into practice. They are like moths attached to the flames, attached to the pleasure of the senses, they do not want to give up these fleeting kinds of happiness. But those who practice the Dhamma will very soon realize that there is a much more profound happiness found by reducing or finally eliminating the defilements. So practicing the Dhamma is good in the middle. And then good in the end means the attainment of liberation. So the end and the culmination of the practice is the complete abandoning of all the defilements which results in the cessation of suffering. And this is the final liberation from the cycle of rebirth. So it's good in the end. The second attribute of the Dhamma is Sanditiko and this means to be realized for oneself. The Buddha's teaching is not to be lived just from what others say, but one has to experience it oneself. And one does not have to wait for this realization till one dies or uh, into a next existence, but it can be experienced here and now if it's practiced properly. The third attribute of the Dhamma is akaliko, and this means immediately effective or no-time Dhamma. Those who actually put the Dhamma into practice can experience by themselves that it bears fruit immediately. It can immediately reduce sorry and worry and calm down an agitated or restless mind if the instructions are properly applied. Many years ago when I was teaching a retreat in Switzerland, there was one meditator 
who came for the interview and she seemed to be quite excited and eager to tell her experience. And so what she reported was that that the previous day she got angry about something and was quite strong anger and so she said that she really made uh, an effort to just be aware of that anger and note it anger, 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 anger and not give up and then she said to her great surprise by noting it attentively the anger weakened and finally disappeared and it had completely disappeared and for her it was such an amazing experience that such a strong state of anger could simply disappear like this just by noting it and then she said uh, it was like uh, the anger was in front of her on a plate nice portion of anger but as she noted and observed this anger it was like mindfulness was eating away the anger and so then what was left was an empty plate then the fourth attribute of the Sangha is ehipasiko and this means that it is open for all to come and see. The Buddha's teaching is not a doctrine reserved for a few people with special initiations. It's openly taught to uh, anyone who is interested in it. It's open to people of all races, all castes, all religions open for inspection for anybody who is curious to know. Although at the time of the Buddha in ancient India the caste system prevailed but the Buddha did not discriminate people regarding their castes. For example uh, there was a barber called Upali and Barbaros belonged to a very low caste but he was admitted in the order of monks and then it was actually him who became the one knowing most about the Vinaya the next attribute is Obaneiko and this means onward leading So when constantly practiced, the Dhamma leads onward to the goal. By practicing the Dhamma, unwholesome mental states are gradually reduced and wholesome mental states are bit by bit increased and made stronger. And so until finally all the unwholesome states have been eradicated and the wholesome states are uh, in full blossom. Also the Dhamma leads onward 
it doesn't mean that it is smooth ride all along. Difficulties and obstacles are bound to show up on the path to liberation. But these challenges or difficulties should not deter us from our practice. If we do not shrink back from these adversities or challenges, but simply keep going, then the Dhamma will lead us onward. And the last attribute of the Buddha, of the Dhamma, sorry, is Pachatam Veditabo Vinyuhi. And this means to be personally realized by the wise. And what can be personally realized by the wise are the nine supramundane dhammas. I've already mentioned them in regard to the attributes of the Buddha. So the nine supramundane dhammas are the four path knowledges, the four fruition knowledges, and Nibbana. So these are the six attributes of the Dhamma. The Dhamma is accessible to all uh, who are interested in it. And by practicing it, one derives as much benefits as one puts effort into it, or as much benefits as one lives accordingly to the Dhamma. The Buddha as a guide only gave us the advice, the instructions. He showed the way. But we ourselves must work out our own liberation to become free from the bondage of samsara. It's actually more important to practice the Dhamma than only worship the Buddha. By wholeheartedly practicing the Dhamma, we can show our gratitude and respect for the Buddha in the most genuine and effective way. Venerable Vakari was a monk at the time of the Buddha, and he followed the Buddha everywhere to behold his master all the time. And so one day the Buddha told him, What will you profit from seeing this impure body? He who sees the Dhamma sees me. So clearly the Buddha was telling him, you know, go and practice the Dhamma. Don't keep don't just stare at me all the time. And Shortly before the Buddha passed away, he said, Whoever lives in accordance with the Dhamma, who is correct in his or her life, who walks in conformity with the Dhamma, it is he or she who rightly honors and venerates the Blessed One with the worthiest homage. So again, the Buddha urging us 
to really practice it. So with this Dhamma talk, we have now covered the six attributes of the Dhamma. The Dhamma being an object of faith or confidence and also the object of refuge. And today we have also looked at different uh, topics around refuge and going for refuge. And this understanding regarding refuge and going for refuge is very important if we want to have this act of going for refuge to be pure and genuine and effective. So I hope that these illustrations have been uh, helpful and clarifying. So the day after tomorrow in the next talk we will have a look at the attributes of the Sangha and also uh, look at the benefits uh, derived from going for refuge. So we'll close this talk. May all of you be able to walk on this path of purification with a clear mind, full of confidence and faith. May you be able to reach the ultimate refuge of Nibbana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.